This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Nourishing Relationships of Love. In the first half, Jeffrey R. Holland shares his address, How Do I Love Thee? Then in the second half, Marlene Williams speaks on A Gospel of Relationships. Sister Holland and I are both especially delighted to be with you the day after Valentine's and the day before Sister Holland's birthday. Guess what is on my mind? Guess what I'm going to talk about? I am going to talk about love because Shakespeare made me do it. You see, it's the 15th of February, which if it were the 15th of March, would be the Ides of March. And everybody remembers what Brutus did to Julius Caesar on the Ides of March. And it befell Mark Anthony to get back at Brutus in the great funeral oration. The same Mark Anthony who let Cleopatra take him for the proverbial trip up the Nile without a paddle, so to speak. <laughs> Never mind that the Ides of February were actually day before yesterday. I am certainly not going to let that stop me from speaking about love and romance and marriage, a topic absolutely foreign to the interests of those on this campus, <laughs> and one scarcely mentioned here this entire month. Indulge me. <laughs> Pretend you are interested, okay? <laughs> if only because Sister Holland is my valentine and it is her birthday tomorrow. You know, winning Sister Holland was actually not an easy thing to do. I worked at it and worked at it and worked at it until I finally had the courage to ask for her hand. Then in that romantic setting, I said as meekly and humbly as I could, Pat, will you marry me? To which she said, Oh, dearest darling, dearest, dearest loved one, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> when, when shall we set the date? Oh, we've got to reserve the temple. I know exactly what colors I want for the bridesmaid. <laughs> Should we have the reception indoors or out? Oh, someone must be at the guest book, and I can see in my mind the cake that we want. And Is she looking at me? <laughs> she stopped mid-sentence and said, Oh, darling, you are so overcome you're speechless. Here I have just gone on and on. Wouldn't you like to say something on this night of nights? To which I replied, I think I've said too much already. She counters that story by reminding me that when I arrived for our first date, her little brother shouted out to her, Hey, dreamboat, your barnacle is here. <laughs> now, actually, neither of those stories is true, but who knows?
Maybe you can use them someday when you have to speak at BYU <laughs> on love and marriage. <laughs> now, let me be serious. What I've learned of romantic love and of the beauty of marriage, I have learned from Sister Holland. I am honored to be her husband. And I'm happy for you that she is on this campus again this morning, if only for an hour or two. As I once said of her, paraphrasing what Mark Twain's Adam said of his Eve, wherever she was, there was paradise. I wish to speak to you this morning about Christ-like love and what I think it can and should mean in your friendships, your dating, in serious courtship, and ultimately in marriage. I approach the subject knowing full well that, as a newly engaged young woman said to me just last month, there is certainly a lot of advice out there. I don't want to add needlessly to this rhetoric on romance, but I believe that, second only to your membership in the Church, your membership in a marriage is the most important association you will have in time and eternity. And to the faithful, what doesn't come in time will come in eternity. So perhaps all of you will forgive me for offering, yes, a little more advice. But I wish it to be scriptural advice, gospel advice. Advice, if you will, that is as basic to life as it is to love. Counsel that is equally applicable to men and women. It has nothing to do with trends or tides of the time or tricks of the trade. But it has everything to do with the truth. So may I put your friendships and dates and eventually your marriages in a scriptural context this morning and speak to you of what I will try to communicate as true love. After a long, wonderful discourse on the subject of charity, the seventh chapter of Moroni tells us that this highest of Christian virtues is more accurately labeled the pure love of Christ. And it endureth forever, and whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him and her. Wherefore, Mormon continues, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love, which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons and daughters of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may be purified even as he is pure. Now, true charity, the absolutely pure, perfect love of Christ, has really been known only once in this world in the form of Christ himself, the living Son of the living God. It is Christ's love that Mormon goes to some length to describe for us there, and which Paul the Apostle did some years before writing to the Corinthians in New Testament times. As in everything, Christ is the only one who got it all right, did it all perfectly, loved the way we're all to try to love. But even though we fall short, that divine standard is there for us. It's a goal toward which we are to keep trying, to keep reaching, to 
keep striving and certainly to keep appreciating. And as we speak of this, may I remind you, as Mormon explicitly taught, that this love, this ability and capacity and reciprocation that we all so want is a gift. It is bestowed. That's Mormon's word. It doesn't come without effort and it doesn't come without patience. But like salvation itself, in the end, it's a gift given by God to the true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, it says. The solution to life's problems are always gospel solutions. Not only are answers found in Christ, but so is the power, the gift, the bestowing, the miracle of giving and receiving such answers. In this matter of love, no doctrine that I know of could be more encouraging to us than that. I've taken for a title this morning Mrs. Browning's wonderful line, How do I love thee? I am not going to count the ways this morning, but I am impressed with her choice of adverb. Not when do I love thee, nor where do I love thee, nor why do I love thee, nor why don't you love me, but rather how. How do I demonstrate it? How do I reveal true love for you? Mrs. Browning was correct. Real love is best shown in the how. And it is with the how that Mormon and Paul help us the most. The first element of divine love, pure love, taught by these two prophets, is its kindness, its selfless quality, its lack of ego and vanity and consuming self-centeredness. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not, is not puffed up, seeketh not her own. I've heard President Hinckley teach publicly and privately what I suppose all leaders have said, male and female, that most problems in love and marriage ultimately start with selfishness. In outlining ideal love in which Christ, the most unselfish man who ever lived, is the great example, it's not surprising that scriptural commentary starts here. There are many qualities you'll want to look for in a friend or a serious date, to say nothing of a spouse and eternal companion. But surely, among the very first and most basic of these qualities will be that of care and sensitivity toward others, a minimum of self-centeredness that allows compassion and courtesy to be evident. That best portion of a good man's life is his kindness, said Mr. Wordsworth. There are lots of limitations in all of us, which we hope our sweethearts will overlook. I suppose no one is as handsome or as beautiful as he or she wishes to be, or as brilliant in school, or as witty in speech, or as wealthy as we would like. But in a world of such varied talents and fortunes, which we can't always command, I think that makes even more attractive the qualities we can command. 
such qualities as simple thoughtfulness, patience, a kind word, true delight in the accomplishment of another. These cost us nothing, and they can mean everything to the one who receives them. I like Mormon and Paul's language that says one who truly loves is not puffed up. Puffed up. Isn't that a great image? Haven't you ever been with someone who was so conceited, so full of themselves that they sounded like the Pillsbury Doughboy? <laughs> Fred Allen said once that he saw such a fellow walking down Lover's Lane holding his own hand. True love blooms when we care more about another person than about ourselves. That is Christ's great atoning example. And it ought to be more evident in the kindness we show, the respect we give, the selflessness and courtesy that we employ in our personal relationships. Love is a fragile thing. And some elements in life can try to break it. Much damage can be done if we're not in tender hands, caring hands. To give ourselves totally, as we do in marriage, to another person is the most trusting step we take in any human relationship. It is a real act of faith, faith all of us must be willing to exercise. If we do it right, we end up sharing everything, all our hopes and our fears, our dreams, our weaknesses, our joys with another person. No serious courtship or engagement or marriage is worth the name if we do not fully invest all that we have into it and in so doing trust ourselves totally to this one we love. You cannot succeed in love if you keep one foot out on the bank for safety's sake. The very nature of the endeavor requires that you hold on to each other as tightly as you can and jump in the pool together. In that spirit and the spirit of Mormon's plea for pure love, I want to impress upon you the vulnerability and the delicacy of your partner's future as it is placed in your hands for safekeeping. Male and female, it works both ways. Sister Holland and I have been married for nearly 37 years, just a half dozen or so years short of twice as long as we have lived without each other. I may not know everything about her, but I know 37 years' worth, and she knows that much of me. I know her likes and her dislikes, and she knows mine. I know her tastes and interests and hopes and dreams, and she knows mine. As our love has grown and our relationship matured, we have been increasingly free with each other about all of that. The result is that I know much more clearly now how to help her. And if I were to let myself, I know exactly what will hurt her. In the honesty of our love, love which cannot truly be Christ-like without such total devotion, Surely God will hold me accountable for any pain I cause her 
by intentionally exploiting or hurting when she has been so trusting of me, long since having thrown away any self-protection in order that we could be, as the Scripture says, one flesh. To impair or impede her in any way for my gain or my vanity or my emotional mastery over her should disqualify me on the spot to be her husband. In all that Christ was, he was never envious or inflated. He was never consumed with his own needs. He did not once, not ever, seek his own advantage at the expense of someone else. He delighted in the happiness of others, happiness that he could bring them. He was forever kind. The second segment of this scriptural sermon on love says that true charity, real love, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity. Think of how many arguments could be avoided, how many hurt feelings could be spared, how many cold shoulders and silent treatments could be ended, and in a worst-case scenario, how many breakups and divorce could be avoided if we were not so easily provoked, if we thought no evil of one another, if we were not only not rejoicing in iniquity, but didn't even rejoice in little mistakes. Temper tantrums are not cute even in children. They are despicable in adults, especially adults who are supposed to love each other. We are sometimes, maybe too often, too easily provoked. We're too inclined to think that our partner must have meant to hurt us, must have meant to do us evil, so to speak. And in defensive or even jealous response, we too often rejoice when we then see them make a mistake and find them in a fault. Let's show some discipline on this one. Let's act a little more maturely. Bite your tongue if you have to. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. At least one difference, it seems to me, between a tolerable marriage and a great one may be that willingness in the latter to allow some things to pass without comment, without response. I mentioned Shakespeare. Now, in a talk on love and romance, you might well expect a reference to Romeo and Juliet. But let me refer to a much less virtuous story. With Romeo and Juliet, the outcome was a result of innocence gone awry, I guess, a kind of sad, heartbreaking mistake between two families that should have known better. But in the tale of Othello and Desdemona, the sorrow and destruction is calculated. 
it is maliciously driven from the beginning. Of all the villains in Shakespeare's writing, and perhaps in all of literature, there is no one I loathe as much as I loathe Iago. Even his name sounds evil to me, or at least it has become so. And what is his evil? And Othello's tragic, near inexcusable susceptibility to it? It is the violation of Moroni 7 and 1 Corinthians 13. Among other things, they sought for evil where none existed. They embraced imaginary iniquity. The villains here rejoiced not in the truth. Of the innocent Desdemona, Iago said, I turn her virtue into pitch, and out of her goodness make the net that shall enmesh them all. Sowing doubt, devilish innuendo, playing on jealousy and deceit, dishonesty, finally murderous rage. Iago provokes Othello into taking Desdemona's life. Virtue turned into pitch and goodness twisted into a fatal net. This tragically sad Elizabethan tale could have had an absolutely beautiful ending if just one man, who then influenced one other man, had thought no evil, had rejoiced not in iniquity, but had rejoiced in the truth. Thirdly and lastly, the prophets tell us that True love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Once again, that is ultimately a description of Christ's love. He's the great example of one who bore and believed and hoped and endured perfectly. We are invited to do the same in our courtship and in our marriage to the best of our ability. Bear up and be strong, be hopeful, be believing. Some things in life we have little or no control over. These have to be endured. Some disappointments have to be lived with in love and in marriage. These are not things anyone wants necessarily in life, but sometimes they come. And when they come, we have to bear them. We have to believe. We have to hope for an end to sorrow and difficulty. We have to endure things that they will come right in the end. One of the great purposes of true love is that it will help one another in these times. No one ought to have to face 
such trials alone. We can endure almost anything if we have someone at our side who really loves us, who is easing the burden and lightening the load to the best of his or her ability. In this regard, a friend from our BYU faculty told me some years ago about Plimsoll marks. As a youth in England, Samuel Plimsoll was fascinated with watching ships load and unload their cargoes. He soon observed, even in his youth, that regardless of the cargo space available, each ship had maximum capacity of some kind. And if a ship exceeded that limit, it would likely sink at sea. In 1868, Plimsoll, as an older man, entered Parliament and passed a Merchant Shipping Act, which, among other things, called for making calculations as to how much a ship could carry. As a result of that legislation, lines were drawn on the hull of each shipping ship in England. As the cargo was loaded, the freighter would sink lower and lower into the water. When the water level on the side of the ship reached the plimsoll mark, the ship was considered loaded to capacity, regardless of how much space appeared to remain. As a result, British deaths at sea were dramatically reduced. Like ships, people have differing capacities at different times, even different days in their lives. In our relationships, we need to establish our own plimsoll marks and help identify them in the lives of those we love. Together, we need to monitor the load levels and be helpful in shedding or at least readjusting some of the cargo if we see our sweethearts sinking. Then when the ship of love is stabilized, we can evaluate long-term what has to continue, what can be put off until another time, and what can be put off permanently. Friends, sweethearts, spouses need to be able to monitor each other's stress and recognize the different tides and seasons of life. We owe it to each other to declare some limits and then help jettison some things if emotional health and the strength of loving relationships are at risk. Remember, pure love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things, and helps loved ones do the same. Let me close. In Mormons and Paul's final witness, they declare that charity, pure love, never faileth. It is there through thick and thin. It endures through sunshine and shadow, through darkest sorrow and on into the light. It never fails. So Christ loved us, and that is how, that is how he hoped we would love each other. In a final injunction to all his disciples for all time, he said, 
a new commandment I give unto thee, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Of course, such Christ-like staying power in romance and marriage requires more than really any of us have. It requires much more. It requires an endowment from heaven. Remember Mormon's promise that such love, the love we each yearn for and cling to, is bestowed, it's given, it's granted upon true followers of Christ. You want capability and safety and security in dating and romance, in married life and eternity? Be a true disciple of Jesus. Believe that your faith has everything to do with your romance, because it does. You separate dating from discipleship at your peril. Or to phrase that more positively, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is the only lamp by which you can successfully see the path of love and happiness for you and for your sweetheart. How should I love thee? As he does. For that way never faileth. I so testify and express my love for you and for him. In the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Nourishing Relationships of Love. We've just heard from Jeffrey R. Holland. After the break, we'll return with Marlene Williams for A Gospel of Relationships. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Nourishing Relationships of Love. Next is Marlene Williams, an Associate Clinical Professor of Counseling Psychology at Brigham Young University at the time of this address, titled A Gospel of Relationships. I'm very grateful for my affiliation with this university and feel it a great honor and responsibility to speak to you this morning. Five of my children have also enjoyed attending classes at BYU. I remember one of them suddenly becoming aware of changes in his life after he entered BYU following his service as a missionary. He dated a lot in high school and had a lot of fun just hanging out and having fun with girls. And after his mission, he expected to resume the same kind of casual fun and games. He returned from his first post-date mission, however, somewhat pale and shaken. When I asked about the date, he replied, This is not just high school fun and games. These women are playing with real bullets. <laughs> yes, you're not just playing a game at this stage of life. This is for real. The young adult years lay the foundations for your future. Changes in relationships are one of those most powerful challenges. 
leaving home and the family environment, living with roommates, making new friends, and laying the relational foundations for eventually marrying and building a family of one's own are challenges that become very real. Relationships form the very basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ taught that all of the gospel laws hang on our ability to love God and others. All of God's laws are ultimately laws of love. Every commandment is given in love for you and concern for your happiness. Every commandment ultimately tests your ability to love him and your fellow man. Just as God has given a gospel of relationships, Satan proposes counterfeit principles that eventually lead to the destruction of relationships, both with God and with others. God teaches you to love others and to learn to live in a Zion society. Satan encourages jealousy and uncharitable judgments. These keep you from feeling close and connected with other people. God teaches you eternal progression and faith in the atonement, while Satan teaches its counterfeit perfectionism that destroys your confidence in both yourself and others. God teaches of eternal marriage where love can last forever. But Satan encourages relationships that are built on selfishness and end when they become inconvenient. I would like to discuss these three principles and their counterfeits in the context of what I have learned about relationships from the gospel of Jesus Christ, from my work as a clinical psychologist, and from 34 years of happy marriage. I once took my grandson to a seafood restaurant. They had a huge tank full of live lobsters. My grandson enjoyed watching with awe as he watched the lobsters move around in the tank, seemingly oblivious to the fact that they would soon be selected for somebody's dinner. My grandson watched entranced for a while, and then he asked me, Granny, there's no lid on the tank, and it's not very deep. Why don't the lobsters just crawl out and go home, and then nobody will eat them? We watched for a few minutes more, and then I noticed a curious phenomena. If one of the lobsters began to crawl out of the tank, the other lobsters would grab and pull and tug and try to pull that lobster back in the tank. So then none of them could escape and go home because they were all too busy pulling each other back into the tank. I wondered what would happen if they could ever figure out that if they could lift and build and help each other, there wouldn't be any more lobster on the menu of that restaurant. Sometimes people behave like lobsters. If one gets a little ahead or looks like they might have figured a path to safety, others clamor to pull them back, and in so doing, no one escapes. Look around you. Notice how much people vary. They vary not only in their appearance, but also in their personalities, in their life experiences, in their challenges, and in their missions here on earth. We learn from the scriptures that not all are given every gift unto them. The scriptures also teach us that we are all given weaknesses in order to teach us humility and compassion. We also are all different so that we might each have something to contribute and some way to belong. When we love each other and have respect for those different abilities, we prepare ourselves to live in a celestial order. Each person edifies the other, and then the whole can become a Zion society. God teaches us to love one another, and yet you may still find that you experience yourself having thoughts and feelings that are less than loving. Sometimes it is a challenge to stop being jealous or to wrongly judge or to compete with one another. We all see through a glass darkly, and our personal experience is limited. So it's easy to look at another person's situation and believe that we see it accurately when in fact we do not. It's easy to believe that you can work out another's salvation because you know what's wrong with their life. 
However, we do not always know of another person's private challenges, sorrows, and disappointments. But even more importantly, we do not know what is God's unique plan for that person's life, and we may risk prescribing the wrong solutions. When we judge uncharitably and attempt to prescribe solutions for other people's life, we run the risk of speaking counter to the Lord's will for that person. Let me illustrate this concept with an object lesson. Here's a pair of glasses that were prescribed especially for me. The optometrist did a very careful examination of my eyes and discovered that I have some very unique needs in order to see correctly. These glasses are bifocals. They're specially ground for a prescription that's a minus 11 in one eye and a minus 13 in the other. Now, I suspect that there are very few individuals in this audience that would see well out of these glasses. Just think what your experience would be like if I insisted that you wear my glasses every day to do your work. They work great for me. I see very well out of them. So what if I assumed that they would be perfect for you and I imposed that solution on you? You would be miserable, and you would probably resent me for imposing the wrong prescription upon you. But even more importantly, you could not do the work that is yours alone if you were to use my prescription. God is the one who must fit the prescription for each of us. He has the knowledge and the wisdom to know our unique needs. How does He reveal His will to an individual? One of the greatest gifts you have to work out your own salvation is the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost can help us each to understand what the Lord would have us do. The Holy Ghost, however, is like the Liahona of old in that it works on condition of our obedience to commandments. In addition, we have the words of both ancient and modern prophets— we can trust the Holy Ghost to help us to understand their words in the context of our own lives. We can also have more personal instruction from prayerful temple attendance, patriarchal blessings, and additional priesthood blessings. We must be very careful not to interfere with these spiritual processes in each other's lives by gossiping, judging, or giving uninspired advice that may come from our own biases, prejudices, or blind spots, however well-meaning they may be. I did a study on LDS women and depression that showed that LDS women who relied on a process of personal spiritual introspection, reading the scriptures, and then seeking answers and spiritual confirmation from the Lord through prayer had better mental health than those who were overly concerned about judgments, gossip, and evaluation from others who have not been given any divine authority to do so. Another reason that it is difficult to escape the trap of uncharitable judgments and jealousy is because you live in a world that is constantly evaluating and judging you. So many opportunities and evaluations are based on beating out someone else. The world teaches you that you have no right to self-esteem unless you are first, get the highest grade, be the number one, or win a competition. There is only room at the top for a few in this celestial world. Nevertheless, you are not here to learn how to prepare to live in a celestial world. You are here to learn to prepare yourself to obtain celestial glory. And there is room for all who qualify in the celestial kingdom. Entrance is not determined by winning a competitive race. All who enter into covenants set by God and then keep those covenants can qualify. You need not be the swift nor the strong, the most beautiful, the most talented, the thinnest, the strongest or the highest achiever. What God requires of each of us 
is that we do whatever is our unique mission on earth and stay in the race that eventually culminates with exaltation and eternal life. When we are consumed with competition, we lose sight of that which God has given to us personally. When we fail to value our own gifts and instead covet those of others, we risk losing the chance to magnify our own calling in life. We cannot rise to the full measure of our own creation if we are continually trying to be someone else. A second pair of opposing principles is becoming perfected through Christ in the Atonement versus Satan's counterfeit of perfectionism. Christ's admonition, Be ye therefore perfect, is not a command to immediately possess all skills, all knowledge, and good qualities right now. It is rather a commandment to enter into a covenant process that involves repentance, change, and growth. This process is dependent upon the Atonement of Christ, which makes repentance possible. President Joseph Fielding Smith clarified this concept in saying, quote, Salvation does not come all at once. We are commanded to be perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. But it will take ages to accomplish this end, for there will be greater progress beyond the grave. And it will be there that the faithful will overcome all things and receive all things, even the fullness of the Father's glory. End quote. Have you ever wondered how perfectionism influences relationships? Perfectionists experience excessive shame in having weaknesses and in making mistakes. They believe that they are only of value if they are performing perfectly in all that they do. Perfectionists may also believe that other people must excel and perform in all areas of their life or they are inadequate and unworthy. Close relationships, however, provide us to a ringside seat to each other's struggles, sensitivities, and shortcomings. If you demand instant perfection from yourself or others, it becomes difficult to share your struggles and disclose your weaknesses for fear of losing your relationships. Then there is no way to provide support for each other in overcoming these weaknesses and challenges. Alma at the Waters of Mormon, as he went to baptize his followers, told them that bearing one another's burdens is one of the first covenants of baptism. When we can openly discuss our weaknesses and problems without fear of rejection or ridicule, you can create a safe place in the relationship. Having the safety to explore those problems in an empathic and caring relationship facilitates the kind of self-examination that is necessary for change and growth to take place. When you can let go of your perfectionism, it is then easier to feel emotionally close to others. Ironically, we often love those people the most whose weaknesses and struggles that we know. Learning how to have close friendships is one of the best ways to prepare for marriage. Whether or not you have the opportunity to date, meet a romantic partner, or marry at this stage of your life, you can still progress towards that goal by learning how to have good friendships with others. The third principle that I would like to discuss is God's plan for eternal marriage versus Satan's plan to destroy relationships. Love has been described as friendship that has caught fire. Learn how to be friends first as the foundation for your relationship. Then add the capstone of romantic attraction. A relationship where you can be friends and share your thoughts, your feelings, your beliefs, your values, activities, and interests with one another is more likely to stay on fire than one that can only share physical attraction. That capstone of attraction can then be a great gift from God. When you use that attraction as God is intended and keep it within the bounds that the Lord has set, it has the force and the power to keep the friendship of marriage on fire 
and forge a bond of love between a man and a woman that can last through all of eternity. God created you in His image so that you might become like Him. The Lord teaches in Latter-day Revelation that one of the purposes of the earth's creation was to provide the opportunity for marriage, which enables us to progress towards exaltation. And again, verily I say unto you, that whoso forbiddeth to marry is not ordained of God, for marriage is ordained of God unto man. Wherefore it is lawful that he should have one wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, and all of this that the earth might answer the end of its creation. Many young people fear making a commitment to marriage because they fear that they cannot keep the love alive. Others may also mistakenly believe that if I can only find the right one, then my marriage will be perfectly happy all the time and will never have any problems. How do you stay in love with someone through all of the challenges of real life, raising children, disappointments, trials, hardships, and discovering each other's weaknesses and vulnerabilities? Heinz Kohut is a psychologist who studied human relationships. He stated, Love is the very painful realization that other people are real. A person may enter marriage with the belief that if my spouse truly loves me, he or she will always think what I think, want what I want, and feel what I feel. Then I'll know that I've married the right person. But if you believe this, then it's then easy to believe that any differences between you are a betrayal of your love or a sign that you are incompatible. You may even then believe that you must compel your spouse to become a replica of yourself in order to become compatible. But in reality, all marriages have differences. People enter into marriage having different genetics, different backgrounds, childhood experiences, family dynamics, traditions, and personal meanings of events. When you can understand your spouse through the lens of their own background and experiences, it can help you to have a more empathic and accurate understanding of their behavior. In troubled marriages, individuals are often quick to jump to the most condemning negative explanation for their spouse's behavior. You can explain most behaviors in more than one way. And when multiple explanations are available, choosing with charity and compassion will strengthen the goodwill in the marriage. It's helpful to communicate that goodwill and good intentions to one another. Let me share a personal story of how I learned this lesson. When I was first a young bride, I noticed that my husband and I had differences in our needs for orderliness. My husband was a scientist, and he performed best under conditions of exactness. I have a more creative temperament, and I perform best when I can act more spontaneously. I began to notice that he would follow me around as I did creative projects and clean up everything before I'd even finished. I interpreted this as a criticism of my housekeeping, and I felt very threatened and hurt. I thought, he thinks I'm a bad wife because I'm not as orderly as he is. When I tearfully confronted him with what I perceived as his displeasure with me, he was genuinely surprised. He explained that he recognized that I did not enjoy cleaning up, and he honestly desired to do something to lighten my responsibilities and make my creative projects more fun for me. He further explained that he enjoyed organizing things, and he saw this as a way that he could show his love for me by doing something that he did well. When we were able to communicate honestly and non-defensively with one another, the bad feelings went away. It really helped me that he could express verbally his good intentions to me so that I could understand him more accurately. But it also helped him that I could trust in those good intentions instead of judging his behavior wrongfully. Often those differences between marriage partners are what attracted you to each other in the first place. 
Those differences can help fill in the gaps in the abilities that may be missing in our own personality and help to round out the family. For example, when a child falls off his bike, one parent might say, You're okay. Come on, get up and try again. The other parent may respond with, Are you okay? Do you need a Band-Aid? These subtle differences between the two parents can often help the child to get a more balanced experience in the family than if one parent's style must always prevail. The child needs to learn both courage as well as tenderness. And if the parents get caught in an argument over whose response is correct, the child may miss the benefit of the gifts of both parents. When couples disagree, they often waste time and emotional energy trying to attach blame to each other. Each believes that the other is at fault and that convincing their spouse of his or her guilt will then solve the problem because the problem is their fault. They may also believe that nothing can change in the marriage unless their spouse changes first. So this argument goes back and forth like a ping-pong ball, but nothing ever really changes. For example, the first may say, You're mean, and you're mad all the time. Then the other responds with, Well, I'm only mad because you're always telling me what to do. Then it goes back to the first. Well, I have to tell you what to do because you're selfish and I can't get you to do anything that I ask you to. Then it goes back to the second. Well, I only do that because you always nag me. <laughs> Sound like arguments you've heard? In this kind of a dialogue, neither will accept the responsibility for their own need to grow because neither will let go of what they cannot change in their partner. So it remains a battle of who must change first. Neither will accept the challenge to grow and become more like Christ unless the other goes first. Accepting responsibility is the beginning of real personal power in relationships. If you can be courageous and loving with yourself, you can begin to find the strength to look at your own personal areas of needed growth. You are then empowered to have a very different experience. You no longer need to experience yourself as a victim of another's behavior who cannot grow because of another person. Even when you cannot change the other person, you can still choose to continue your own growth towards becoming a celestial partner. Although the relationship may not be perfect, it can still become a means through which you can grow towards your own perfection and becoming like Christ. Taking responsibility for our own growth requires both love and faith. When we are willing to lovingly examine our own lives, we become aware of our own need for the Atonement. This draws us closer to Christ. As we struggle with our own weaknesses, we develop empathy for how hard it is to change, and we become less angry with our spouse for not being able to change as quickly as we want him or her to change. We can then acknowledge our own dependence upon the Atonement, and we realize how much Christ loves us. Christ did not wait to love us until we were perfect, had overcome all of our weaknesses, or had fully developed our ability to love Him in return. He loved us first and was willing to show that love by suffering in Gethsemane and dying on the cross for our sins, our infirmities, and weaknesses. By drawing closer to Christ, we can build our own spiritual and emotional reserves and have more love and patience to give to our spouse. Ironically, it's often your own capacity to love that then makes you more lovable to others. Learning how to love requires that we stretch and extend ourselves in service to another. When we truly love, service can be experienced as a gift that we freely choose to give to the other rather than a chore or a burden that is demanded. When we are willing to sacrifice in order to provide dependable, consistent concern, 
for the life, welfare, and feelings of each other, love can be kept alive through life's difficult challenges. Sometimes individuals are afraid of service because they may confuse service with subservience, subjugation, or loss of power. The Lord's plan for relationships does not include any form of unrighteous dominion or dictatorship. Power in marriage can only be handled upon principles of righteousness. Real power in marriage comes from doing service in a spirit of love, kindness, gentleness, meekness, and love unfeigned. This kind of service to another can bind that other to us in so much that they are in the relationship because they choose it freely, not because they are forced or compelled. In this kind of a relationship, no one need fear submission to the other. Paul's admonition to wives to submit yourselves unto your husbands has sometimes erroneously been used as justification for unrighteous dominion in marriage. But a more careful reading of the surrounding verses, however, makes it clear that the command is to submit to love rather than to submit to domination. Husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the Church and gave Himself for it. Submitting to love, then, means that we allow our hearts to be vulnerable to a righteous and loving husband. We become more tender-hearted and gentle with our husband when we submit to love. We let ourselves be vulnerable to those tender, loving feelings. We then no longer experience kindness and service as a subjugation or as a burden. It is a gift of love. When both husband and wife provide consistent, dependable service to one another to show that love, no one need fear vulnerability, subjugation, nor loss of power. Some worldly philosophies suggest that service and sacrifice to others will cause you to lose your own identity. President Spencer W. Kimball gives us wise counsel for how service can strengthen our identity rather than diminish it. He stated, quote, There is great security in spirituality, and we cannot have spirituality without service. So often our acts of service consist of simple encouragement or of giving mundane help with mundane tasks. But what glorious consequences can flow from mundane acts and from small but deliberate deeds? In the midst of the miracle of serving, we find ourselves. Not only do we find ourselves in terms of acknowledging guidance in our lives, but the more we serve our fellow man, and I would add our spouse, the more substance there is to our souls. Indeed, it is easier to find ourselves because there is so much of us to find. End of quote. A marriage need not be perfect and without challenges to be one of great joy and peace. Peace does not come from a lack of problems, disruptions, and difficulties, but peace comes from knowing that one's life is in harmony with the will of God. When we struggle in important relationships and we lack the wisdom that we need, these problems can bring us to our knees in prayer. The Lord can then instruct us in how to live more closely to an eternal model of marital relationships. You need not fear the challenges of marriage if both you and your spouse will both commit yourselves to a process of learning how to become eternal celestial companions. Elder George Q. Cannon said it beautifully, quote, We believe in the eternal nature of the marriage relation, that men and women are destined as husband and wife to dwell eternally. We believe that we are organized as we are, 
with all of these affections, with all of this love for each other, for a definite purpose, something far more lasting than to be extinguished when death shall overtake us. We believe that when a man and a woman are united as husband and wife, and they love each other, and their hearts and feelings are one, that love is as enduring as eternity itself, and that when death overtakes them, it will neither extinguish nor cool that love, but that it will brighten and kindle into a pure flame that will endure throughout eternity. End of quote. If you've not yet found some of these blessings in your life, do not give up. God knows the righteous desires of your heart. He has promised his children that these blessings will eventually be available to all who are faithful and will put their trust in the Lord throughout the heartaches, trials, and disappointments of mortality. I bear my personal testimony that the gospel of Jesus Christ, as found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is the truth. I bear my personal testimony that in God's own time and in his own way, the great blessings of eternal marriage and eternal family can belong to each of us through our faithfulness. Although God has not revealed all to us in this life and we must walk by faith, he has promised us that through the infinite power of the Atonement of Christ, we can come forth in the resurrection of the just. We will then be free from the thorns and afflictions of mortality and sealed into loving family relationships that will never be taken away, but that will last for all eternity. I am very thankful for my beloved family and friends who have helped me to appreciate and want these great blessings. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Nourishing Relationships of Love, with thoughts from Jeffrey R. Holland and Marlene Williams. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.